This fresh coat of the startup life has been sprayed on nice and smooth by Wagner and the Flexil series of paint sprayers. Startup Nation, my wife decided she wanted to rehab her childhood home. The goal was to fix it up and invite a nice family to rent it out. We knew one of the biggest jobs we had to undertake was painting. However, from the walls, the cabinets, and even the siding outside, it was going to be a big task. As entrepreneurs with a company to run, we knew this was going to take up a lot of our time, which is why we decided to get a paint sprayer. And after much research, we decided to go with the sprayer from the Flexio series from Wagner. Startup Nation, these sprayers are top-notch because of its flexibility to paint or stain walls, furniture, cabinets, and more. It's 10 times faster than using a paintbrush, which was a big selling point for us. And you can paint or stain right from the can. It's also easy to clean in five minutes and being great for indoor and outdoor projects, a paint sprayer from the Flexio series clearly needs to be part of the arsenal in your garage. So if you're ready to stain your deck or like me, feel your daughter's request of a bubblegum pink room, up your game with a paint sprayer from the Flexio series by Wagner. Take it from me. Your time will thank you. It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, so I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, around January, you were probably super excited about starting a company, you know, one of those New Year's resolutions and stuff like that. You knew you had to raise uh, capital and everything, and then COVID just kind of came out of nowhere and probably put a kibosh uh, on the whole thing. Uh, but we have two, not just one, but two uh, well-seasoned uh, uh, investors here on the show today to kind of help us out, kind of navigate those waters and to talk about uh, two new books that we'll be discussing. We have Ian Hathaway and Brad Fell. Fellas, how's it going today? Going great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. No worries. No worries. So if you would, I, I guess we'll start with Ian Could, really quickly. Just kind of share your origin story a little bit about, uh, you know, who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I um, I currently work with uh, Techstars. Mm -hmm. I'm part of our ecosystems team. Um, we work with uh, cities um, around the world with a range of stakeholders to improve the environment uh, so that entrepreneurs can succeed. Right. Um, I also, uh, you know, my my origin story, I guess, uh, I, I started out in economics and research uh, that has evolved into uh, consulting and in tech and media. And um, about the last, you know, seven or eight years, I've, that's transitioned into working uh, with startups. Um, I do a bit of mentoring advisory and, and uh, in the last year, I've started doing some investing, obviously, um, uh, collaborated with Brad on this book, um, still do a little bit of research and, uh, and, and, and a, quite a bit of writing. And, and Startup Nation, that book is The Startup Community Way. And we have a link there in the show notes for easy access if you listen to the replay on the podcast as that book is available today. Brad, how about you, sir? You can share your order story a little bit with us. I started my first company in 1987 when I was in college. Uh, I sold it to a public company in 1993. While I was working for that public company, uh, I made about 40 angel investments over a three-year period with the money that I made from selling that first company. So became a very active angel investor in the mid-90s during the rise of the commercial internet. Uh, ended up accidentally becoming a venture capitalist and uh, started a fund that initially was called SoftBank Technology Ventures. It was uh, affiliated with SoftBank uh, in Japan. It ended up being a firm called Mobius Venture Capital. Uh, that firm rode the internet bubble up. We had an amazing 
three years and then we wrote it down very, very hard and had the experience of uh, the collapse of the internet bubble. Uh, in 2006, I co-founded Techstars. And in 2007, I co-founded Foundry Group, which is the investment firm I'm part of today. Uh, we invest all around the U.S. in tech companies. Uh, we have about $2.5 billion under management. Uh, some companies people may know of that we were early investors in included uh, Zynga, mm-hmm. uh, Fitbit, uh, MakerBot, right. a handful of others. And uh, I've been writing books since 2010. Uh, the Startup Community Way is my seventh. Uh, and it's my, uh, I got asked recently what, what my favorite co-author collaboration was. I think that was a setup question by Ian. Uh, and my response was that he was my second favorite. My first favorite was my wife, uh, Amy. Uh, and we wrote a book in 2015 that has a very coincid- uh, coincidental name with this podcast called uh, The Startup Life. Right. So when I saw the, uh, the invite for the podcast come across, I smiled a big smile. <laughs> I heard that. Great minds think alike, I guess, for sure. So I, I appreciate uh, you sharing that. Uh, you know, with everything going on, fellas, you know, a, a lot of people are uh, still looking to raise money uh, for their startups and, and things of that nature. So, Brand, I'm, I'm going to go to you first. You know, even in this era and this you know global pandemic that is COVID, you know, uh, have things changed too much? You know, uh, changed a little bit, you know, due to COVID as far as raising money and pitching and stuff like that? Well, some of the dynamics are very different because okay. we've obviously shifted from an, a physical in-person world uh, to a virtual world. And I think if you had said to VCs in January, uh, how comfortable are you going to be with investing in, in companies where you've never physically met the founders, you know, been in person and spent time with them? I think most VCs would have said that they're, they wouldn't be comfortable with that, that they really needed to meet the founders face-to-face and right. spend time with them. Um, uh, today, in uh, you know, end of July, uh, many uh, VCs are investing uh, at, at uh, good clips, at, at decent velocities in companies without ever physically meeting the founders. So that has been a cultural shift across uh, the investing landscape that in a lot of ways uh, I think is very advantageous to the uh, entrepreneur in, in a good way because previously uh, when you fundraised entrepreneurs sort of hauled themselves all over uh, you know went went to the airport and flew wherever you needed to go to get in front of the VC or you're constantly going to the VC to their office uh, and in this mode that uh, uh, both the, the time and and friction but also the power dynamics some of that has shifted gotcha. uh, which I think again is healthy for entrepreneurs. Uh, at the early stages, there's a lot of investing activity happening. At the late stages, there's a lot of investing activity happening, companies that are successful and growing and raising more capital. I think that the place that's challenging in this moment is much more in the middle. Okay. Um, if, if companies are growing quickly and everything's working great, uh, they're going to have a relatively easy chance of raising money right now. Uh, if companies you know, have raised some money but are sort of stuck, you know, they're, they're growing a little bit but not that much or the business isn't quite working or – you know, products in the market, but it hasn't really uh, taken off yet. I think those next financings right now are very challenging. Ian, I want to ask you uh, something really quickly because I was talking to uh, another guest here on the Startup Life, Marcy Hare. She has uh, a startup that was well, not a startup anymore is in the game 10 years now, but she has a company there in Silicon Valley. And we had a discussion yesterday about how, uh, you know, there's kind of a movement in, in Silicon Valley and investing in, in VC world 
uh, across to where uh, it's it's starting to look to be more about like generating revenue as opposed to just raising money with companies. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Are you experiencing that? Are you seeing that uh, in your work as well? Well, I'll just say that. Um, so I'm not a VC. Gotcha, so gotcha. I'm 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 investing the the companies that I that are you know uh, coming uh, in front of me are at a much earlier stage, pre-seed and seed. So oftentimes. Um, these are companies with little to no revenue to begin with. Right. Um, so that, that's a little bit of a, out of the question, but we do see, you know, there are a number of emerging models. We see, um, a couple of, of models that are, that are gaining, uh, traction in DVCs. One of them, um, where they're moving towards more of, um, a revenue based model, right. alternative funding models where it's not, uh, Hey, look, um, I mean, I, I look at VC as a form of accelerating uh, a company's growth cycle. Um, not all companies want or are positioned uh, to do that quickly. Um, I think something like five, uh, half of a percent of all businesses uh, in the United States uh, will ever raise VC. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a disproportionate amount of them become high growth companies, but there are many high growth companies that will never raise venture capital. You know, Ian, if you would just kind of talk about uh, the book you and, and Brad kind of co-authored and the premise for it and stuff like that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, so um, I'll, I'll let Brad talk about okay. the entire arc of this because I'll be, he, but I'll talk about this book. So this follows Brad's 2012 book, startup communities, right. which chronicles his experience in Boulder. Uh, Brad and I, um, became friends a few years back. We began talking in 2016 about how we might do a collaboration. Uh, a few iterations, we, we, we decided that we would work on this together um, to evolve uh, startup communities. And um, the, our, the process of, you know, we started working in 2017 in the spring, and the process of creating this book is actually a good example of the principles we talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we use complex adaptive systems to, uh, which is a framework that, uh, you know, I guess has origins going back multiple decades, but really accelerated in the 1980s uh, with the founding of the Santa Fe Institute. And the basic idea, you know, human social systems, which startup communities are human social systems fundamentally, um, are complex adaptive systems. It means that they're highly uncertain, that they have certain types of behavior, uh, such as nonlinear uh, progression. So um, you can experience exponential growth or decay. Um, There's also concepts we talk about like uh, contagion. And in this sense, I mean, it's often thought of um, in terms of, you know, viruses, which is at the forefront of society today with the, you know, you brought up COVID earlier, but it's also about the spread of ideas, um, of values, of behaviors, we talk a little bit about a concept called phase transitions, which is essentially, you know, if you think of a dam, right, uh, it's it's either holding all the water back or none of the water back at all. And it feels like so in startup communities, people can be working towards these goals um, for a long period of time. It feels like nothing is happening. And then one day there's a whole there's, you know, maybe some high profile success or outcome occurs and the entire system has shifted into a new state. And so the motivation for this was really around this idea of, you know, we break down uh, the difference between startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. Um, 
the startup community essentially being a, the beating heart of, of, of entrepreneurship in the city. The entrepreneurial ecosystem is a broader construct of a range of different actors uh, that want to be involved with entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, key examples, governments, corporates, universities, and so on. Right. Um, and what we observed was that uh, there was really a difference in incentives and worldview and, uh, you know, characteristics, behavioral traits of the the community. So that's the entrepreneurs and those folks who are who are working with entrepreneurs on a daily basis and sort of understand the entrepreneurial way. Um, and then these new actors who wanted to engage um, at an increasing rate, uh, uh, larger amount of actors, more resources put into it. What we realized is that um, we needed to provide a framework that was accessible that explained the this these behaviors that I described earlier mm-hmm. to these institutions, which are normally structured in a top-down hierarchical way, uh, which is about control, planning, and execution. That doesn't work in these systems. In complex systems, it's really a bottom-up phenomena of you know being agile, experimentation, learning, and adaptation. So. This book is really about bridging the divide between these two uh, distinct but complementary uh, systems. Brad, I, I want to ask you this because, you know, you talk, you know, Ian was just talking about those complementary uh, symptoms. And there are plenty of people who want to support entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, but they don't necessarily want to be in the startup uh, kind of, you know, uh, gist of it all. What are some of those ways that people can just support entrepreneurs and not really uh, be entrepreneurs themselves? So in the First of the two books, Startup Communities, mm-hmm. uh, which I wrote in, in 2012 right. and just updated. So a second edition just Absolutely. came out. We, uh, we, we break people uh, or break things into three categories and we call them leaders, feeders and instigators. Okay. And leaders and instigators are people and feeders are organizations. So if you start from that frame of reference. To have a successful startup community, you have to have a critical mass of entrepreneurs playing leadership roles. And we underscore that in an important way. There have to be entrepreneurs who are leading the startup community for the startup community to grow and develop and evolve. Of course. The person or the archetype of the person you just described, uh, we describe as an instigator. Okay. So they play leadership roles in the startup communities but they work for some other organization. They might work for a large company. They might work for a government. They might work for a university. They might work for a nonprofit that's supporting entrepreneurship, or they might work for another startup. Uh, and they don't want to be an entrepreneur themselves, but they are very, very interested in helping and supporting and growing and developing the startup community. So those instigators also can play key leadership roles on par with the entrepreneurs. We separate out organizations, because that's the mistake that so many people and and organizations make in the context of building and developing startup communities around the world, is that the organizations themselves cannot be the leaders. If you sort of reflect back on Ian's uh, rant that he just had about networks and hierarchies, most, most organizations function hierarchically from the top down. And they try to control things and they try to organize things so that they work in the context of how that organization uh, functions. Whereas entrepreneurship is messy. It's, it's very much a bottoms up phenomenon. Right. And the startup community and startup community development is also a bottom up phenomenon. So the organizations themselves 
uh, we categorize as feeders, and they play a role of supporting entrepreneurs. And I think this is the key, Mm -hmm. is to always remember that the goal of a startup community is to help entrepreneurs succeed. The specific things that those instigators can do uh, vary widely. And my suggestion, and by the way, it varies by startup community, right? There's not a playbook. This is part of the nice thing about uh, how a startup community grows and evolves. It's also one of the challenging things. And it's an essential part of uh, the way we describe it in the startup community way. Right. As a, as a complex system, there isn't a recipe or a set of rules to follow. Every startup community has its own characteristics and its own needs that develop generatively over time. And as a result, the interesting and powerful thing for instigators is that they can get involved in areas of the startup community that are interesting and important to them and that play to their strengths as individuals. And in that, whether it's, you know, leading different types of activities, uh, different types of meetups around, uh, either products or technologies, or, you know, if you're a really strong sales leader, every startup company needs somebody who knows how to sell. Absolutely. And most startups are, you know, maybe the CEO or maybe one of the founders is a good salesperson, but a lot of times as they start to scale up their businesses, they don't really know how to sell. Or if you're somebody who's really, really good at UX or product, again, leading, uh, uh, activities and events in your community, engaging with other startups uh, around that and around product development uh, is a powerful thing. So the, the the nice idea here or the important idea here is that there's flexibility versus, okay, here are the three things you need to go do. Absolutely. And and that flexibility changes or the, the, the flexibility around the activities changes over time based on what's actually happening in the startup community. I want to ask a a quick follow-up because you talked about, you know, uh, people in that community can kind of help the startups kind of would do what they love uh, best. And in this case, you you brought up sales because you said, and you're absolutely right, you know, everybody needs sales no matter what kind of uh, widget or product or service that you have. Uh, I guess what I want to ask uh, is this because you, you've been uh, part of uh, very successful early stage uh, uh, in, investments like you mentioned Zynga uh, and I read in your profile harmonics and stuff like that. Big fan of Guitar Hero here and stuff like that. What are some of those things you're looking for as the VC that you need to hear from a salesperson in a sales pitch, in a slide deck? Because we have a, many people in our in our audience who are trying to put those slide decks together, trying to put those sales presentations together. What are you looking for? What What is successful uh, to you? The most important thing for uh, a founder to know when they're trying to raise VC or pitching VCs is to not think of venture capitalists as a singular thing, a singular archetype. Right. Uh, each VC is different, and each VC firm is usually a collection of a different set of VCs. Uh, for the older people in the audience, I like to refer to VCs as Dungeons and Dragons characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a, 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 a Magic the Gathering or a Lord right. of the Rings fan, right. you know you'll recognize it. You got some elves, and you got some dwarves, and you got some giants, and you got some orcs, and you got some trolls. Um, and unfortunately, in the venture world, there's plenty of trolls. Mm-hmm. And the 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 thing to recognize as a, a founder who's pitching investors uh, is that you're really uh, needing to do two things at the same time. One is you need to sell yourself and sell your vision of what you're building 
and sell your product and the product that you're creating. So that's a thing. Right. The other is you need to help convince the investor that you were put on planet Earth to do the thing you're working on. So this this notion of not just the substance uh, of what you're doing, but also your deep obsession and commitment to what you're doing. Right. For for the v, on the VC side, you know, some VCs are very analytical, so they care a lot about the numbers. Some right. VCs really only care about the product. Um, some VCs are very focused on what um, their interpretation of the market opportunity is. And so this comes back to the first comment that I made, and then I'll answer from my perspective. Sure. Uh, the the comment that I made is, you need to understand when you go pitch somebody what they're interested in versus viewing it as a generic thing you're trying to convince them of. And you know, 20 years ago, that was really hard because you know there wasn't information on the web about VCs and VCs didn't tweet and VCs didn't blog. Uh, and there weren't websites. And today, there's a huge amount of information on the web about pretty much everybody. And so I really encourage entrepreneurs to do some research in advance and make sure that they're tuning their message and tuning their approach to what they uh, view the VC or the investor as saying they're interested in. For for me personally, I really only am focused on three things. Okay. Uh, one is whether or not I have an affinity for the product. I don't have to be a daily user of the product, but I have to care about the product. I have to get it. I have to understand why it's interesting. Um, and by the way, a lot of products that uh, uh, a lot of companies that I invest in when I, I, I get introduced to them, the products aren't usable yet, right? They're still right. before they're in a position where they can be usable. So that description of the vision of where the product is going to go and what it's going to do uh, is key. The second for me is that the founders have to be obsessed about what they're doing. And I use the word obsessed rather than passion deliberately because it's super easy to fake passion. You can be Mm -hmm. enthusiastic about anything if you're an extrovert or if you're a good salesman. So I'm less interested in the enthusiasm somebody has for something, but rather, again, this phrase I used earlier, what do they put on this planet to work on this product, to work on this company? And then the last for me, is that the founders have to want to be partners with me as much as I want to be partners with them. So it's both directions. It's not just you know me getting excited about them, but if if they're not that excited about me as an investor based on who I you know who I am and how I approach things, that's fine. But that's probably not going to be a, a good partnership for me. Got you. If I could ask a, a quick follow, and I'm glad you said that 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 third part that is kind of a a two way street, if you will, because we see a lot of people who pitch to VCs or angel investors and stuff like that, and they only care about the purse strings. But you know, a lot of times that VC or angel investor actually comes with a rolodex, which is probably more valuable uh, than the investment itself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a wise statement that you just made. Is that you know, while VCs provide money, in a lot of ways, money is the least, uh, not the least, but it's the least differentiated thing that VCs have. Right. Right. Money's important, but, it, it, you know, it, sort of any investor has money. If you only have one investor who's interested in you, then, of course, that's what you're going to do because you are you need the money. That's why you're raising the money from the investor. But if you have multiple investors who are interested in you, all of a sudden you can dig deeper and start to understand what those investors are able to bring to the table beyond just money. 
Uh, Rolodex is is something most investors have. Rolodex to other investors, Rolodex to help you, you know, recruit people, employees, uh, customers. But even that, the Rolodex itself uh, can be helpful, but also most investors are going to have a network that they can help you plug into. So it's who's in the network and what's the quality of the network starts to become more important than just that they have a network. Some investors are, again, great salespeople. Some are great product people. Some are great financial people. If you're uh, a great product person as a founder, you might be attracted to a a VC who is also a great product person, but you might benefit more from a VC who's a great salesperson. And so just understanding what what the skills and capabilities of that VC are and what you need as a founder or a a founding team uh, becomes a, a key part of that exploration. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope you caught that startup nation because that's that's very important. And I think a lot of startups kind of unfortunately make that mistake and may lose out on uh, something much more that could be uh, valuable uh, of value uh, to their company. So I appreciate you sharing that. Ian, I, I want to ask you this because you, you talked about working with early stage investors, uh, maybe not making any revenue just yet and stuff like that. And I want to ask about that because I imagine uh, when you when you uh, create a startup and, and you're trying to create a business, obviously you want to make money, but that can be challenging in the sense of like, well, nobody understands the product. Nobody understands what you're trying to sell. So how how do you mentor and advise those early stage investors to kind of get over those humps? Uh, so I'll answer that quickly. And I wanted to, um, but then I also want to double back and say something oh, sure. about, Absolutely. Yes. about what, what Brad's comments were yes. applied to this book yes. uh, in communities. So, I mean, at, at, at the very early stage, what you're betting on is an idea and what it could be. Um, so does this have the potential to become a very large company and return investment on the other, you know, the next 10 companies that will likely fail? Um, similar comment to Brad's is, do I have an interest in what they're doing? Right. Um, uh, and the third thing is, do I think this person uh, is capable of doing it, of, of taking the company to where it needs to go? Mm-hmm. Uh, this group of people. And so that's, that's basically it. Similar principles, but it's, it's much more on the first one. What, not what this is, what could it be? What could it become? Uh, going back to this issue of, you know, of, of capital in general, which has been a theme um, in this conversation, mm-hmm. we going back to the book and to the communities, uh, startup communities, we have a framework in here uh, that we call the seven capitals. Um, it's uh, an evolution of something that Brad talked about in the first startup communities book in 2012, which was basically complaining about capital. And I, if I'm, I believe to, to summarize, it's sort of, look, there's always going to, people are always going to complain about capital right. by which they mean financial capital, uh, which typically means investment from venture capitalists or angels. Um, there's always going to be an imbalance between supply and demand. Um, you know, over the last decade, that's certainly loosened up a bit, but um, perhaps, you know, we're heading into a cycle where uh, the strings may tighten a bit um, in, in certain stages. Um, however, uh, we wanted people to focus on th- this idea of other types of capital. Um, startups need more than financial capital, more than equity investment. And within the community context, 
uh, we were saying, okay, there's seven types of capitals. The first is intellectual capital, which you can think of as sort of uh, technologies, uh, intellectual property, information, ideas. The second is human capital, which is um, skills, capabilities, experience of people, uh, knowledge that's specific to, um, you know, to, to starting and scaling high growth companies. The third is financial capital, which is talked about, um, which is, you know, we talked about equity, but there's also debt, grant, revenue financing. Uh, and also, by the way, the best type of financial capital is revenue from customers. Right. Um, we talked about physical capital, which we think of as, you know, f- physical density, quality of place and the infrastructure in those communities. Institutional capital, which we, we think of as ranging from all the big uh, institutional actors, which we kind of ran through before, governments, uh, corporates, universities, and so on, but also, you know, a functioning system of laws, market stability. Um, the final two, which I think are actually the most important or maybe the least um, uh, get some of the least attention because they're so intangible, mm-hmm. which is network capital, net- network capital and cultural capital. So what is the connectedness relationships? We talked about social capital. Um, Brad mentioned, look, it's not just the money that's the money that VCs bring is, is actually a commodity. It's what else do they bring? What's the differentiator? It's the relationships, the network and culturally, um, you know, what are the kind of the attitudes, norms, um, the love of place of a community. So we really want to stress this idea. And I think this, this can be adapted to thinking about your startup, which is there's more than one type of capital. Um, you, you know, financial capital may be the thing that is, in fact, uh, the most missing and that needs to be prioritized. But some of these other factors are more in control and deserve an equal, uh, if not more, amount of attention. Got you. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And Startup Nation, you can learn about all those different types of capital and more in the startup community way. We have a link there in the show notes for easy access if you listen to the replay on the podcast. And, and that book is available today. And also Startup Communities, the second edition, Brad's book uh, is actually available. That second edition is available today as well. And the link there in the show notes if you listen to the replay uh, on the podcast. Ian, I'm actually going to stay with you uh, for this next question, if you don't mind, because I, I know. Know, you know, we're talking about startup communities and, and, and things of that nature. And I know you've worked in different, you know, organizations and different, many different roles uh, in, in London and in Santa Barbara and in D.C. Kind of talk about your feel, your commentary of those ecosystems, those communities when it comes to uh, startups in the entrepreneurial space, if you don't mind. Well, they're all very different. Of course. And I actually believe that the startup communities um tend to reflect the broader community. Okay. I'm going to tell a story about a different place. Um, Please do. Which is, which is Boulder. Um, and the reason I want to do this is that um, I feel like my personal take on Boulder is a very powerful example of how people can take this work into the world and, and improve their own communities. Okay. So Boulder. So one of the, I feel like, the criticisms I, or one of the pushbacks I've heard about startup communities, Brad's first book is, well, you know, Boulder is this unique place. It's the idealized state of the world. And so what about all these other places? Um, my response to that and, and, and fully acknowledging. So if you just look at the data, Boulder has so many assets. It has so many things going for it, right? Um, you've got a highly educated population. Um, you've got huge federal labs, a research university, um, you know, you've got some leading venture capital firms, some of which weren't around, uh, you know, 
you know, two decades ago, decade ago, you have institutions like Techstars again, wasn't there, uh, I guess, you know, almost a decade and a half ago. Um, it's a, it's got fantastic weather, natural amenities. It's a fun place. Um, all of these things, but even when you account for all of that, if you look at depending on the measure, entrepreneurial output on a per capita basis in Boulder is really second to maybe the Bay Area only uh, in the United States, if not greater. So very high capacity. I think, you know, it's it attracts a certain type of individual. But what I what I personally believe, and this is the key lesson from Boulder, from my perspective, is that one that Boulder gets um, I'm saying it sort of they get all of the juice out of the lemon. Um, through being more collaborative, through being helpful to one another, opening their networks, making introductions, giving time. Um, you know, Brad has pioneered this concept, Give First, which is is absolutely a fantastic way of, you know, really not just for business, but life, saying right. I'm willing to help people in this community without expecting something in return immediately. Right. It's not altruism. You, you're expecting to get something back, but you don't know when, from whom, and in what form. And that's okay. And this reduces friction and allows collaboration to to occur. And so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff written on ecosystems, communities. We've obviously written a, a book together. Brad wrote one um, on his own uh, entirely in, in this one with me. And and but it's really it's really very simple. Um, the best way to do this is to find ways to help entrepreneurs and uh, you know in methods big and small. Um, over an extended period of time and at a critical mass in a community, um, which we believe helps entrepreneurs succeed, which is fundamentally what this is all about. And you're absolutely right about, you know, Boulder and uh, the, the Denver state of Denver. If I remember correctly, there was a one point in time where 50 percent uh, being in a very educated space, uh, people who live there and stuff like that. If I'm not mistaken, I believe half of the people in the state of Colorado have at least a a community college or a two year degree of some sort. It's probably one of the highest uh, in the country. Uh, and, but speaking of Boulder, I actually used to live in Denver, so I know a little bit about what you're talking about. But speaking of Boulder, how much of, you know. Uh, with all the success that Boulder has, how much does like surrounding areas like a Denver and those, those other places play into that ecosystem, play into that community uh, to kind of help fuel that success as well? Well, they play off each other and, okay. and very, par- very powerful ways over a long period of time. So in 2012, when I wrote the startup communities, my guess is that Boulder and Denver probably had about the same number of companies startup companies, but Boulder is a hundred thousand people and Denver is two million people. Right. So you know, Denver was twenty times the size of Boulder. The density or the entrepreneurial density of Boulder was twenty times more than Denver. It, we like to talk about Boulder and Denver as binary stars. Mm. Uh, they're two separate, you know, two separate stars that orbit around each other. They're not a planet where you have a moon that orbits around it, but sort of these two stars that are constantly dancing around each other. Right. And they have this interactive effect. And there's a lot of other uh, binary star cities in the world. Some of my uh, favorites include um, uh, Toronto and Waterloo. Very similar dynamic, interestingly. Both, you know, Waterloo is a college town like Boulder is. It's about 100,000, maybe a little bit more. Toronto is a huge city, 6 million people or something like that. And from, you know, if you look at the actual amount of entrepreneurial activity uh, a decade ago, probably Waterloo had as much or more 
number of companies on a much smaller population base. Today, uh, if you go Boulder to Denver, uh, the startup community in Denver is uh, off the charts. It's just an incredible amount of activity. And a lot of that came from the interactive effect between entrepreneurs in Boulder who opened companies in Denver because they wanted to be able to attract people from that area versus just around Boulder. Or maybe they were interested in having their company there or they expanded. A lot of uh, Boulder companies like uh, SendGrid and Rally Software and Zayo that were successes at some point opened another office. And that other office often was, even though it was only you know 45 minutes away, it was in Denver. So you have this expansion um, because the communities are not just separate. Uh, and it's also right. not a zero a zero sum game. It's Absolutely. not a case where, you know, Boulder wins and Denver loses. It's the case where both cities can benefit uh, from a lot of collaboration cooperation between the two of them. And then that keeps expanding. So it's not just in the city, but it's in the state. Of so course. if you look at Colorado today, entrepreneurship across all of Colorado uh, has grown significantly. Uh, there's been a lot of effort in non-urban or rural Colorado. Uh, around entrepreneurship. And some of the people that are leaders there, people like Mark Nogger, Delaney Keating, um, have spent a lot of time in startup communities in bigger cities and are now applying that kind of thinking across broader geographies. And in fact, one of the new chapters in startup communities is an entire chapter on rural startup communities, where all of a sudden you have, you know, to contend with cities that might be five or 10 or 15,000 people, and how do you actually get those communities or those startup communities really humming in a meaningful way? So I think the the importance for a listener to sort of chew on is it's not that we're playing, again, a zero-sum game between geographies. Of we're playing course. a positive-sum game. The more we can help each other, uh, both in a city or across a city around entrepreneurship, the faster that startup community is going to grow. And, and Brad, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's kind of what I wanted to kind of get at is that, it, like I said, it's not a zero sum game. It's not a situation where one person wins, another person loses. And you really uh, kind of talk about that in both of those books, really. So I, I appreciate uh, you sharing that. Startup Nation, we're wrapping up. Uh, with Ian Hathaway and Brad Feld here on uh, the startup life. And I want to ask this question, and it can go to either one of you. When you talk to newly minted startup founders and entrepreneurs, or even well-seasoned ones, and, and we're seeing what's happening uh, in the entrepreneurial space, in the business space, and how COVID is kind of, for lack of a better phrase, kind of wreaking havoc on small businesses and even some of the larger ones, you know, Hertz and Chuck E. Cheese and a few other retailers kind of come to mind. What are some of those lessons that you're sh- that, that, that is coming from COVID that you're sharing with those entrepreneurs, those newly minted entrepreneurs? I mean, I'm happy to- go ahead, Ian. Yeah, I was just going to say one thing, having, um, let me answer a slightly different question, okay. which um, I just spent yesterday morning uh, mentoring a new crop of um, tech stars, New York companies. And one of the first things that I uh, ask is how they're doing to remind them that this is a really insane moment in time right. and that it's okay for them to be, to not have the answers to be struggling. Um, I mean, you know, we're all, we're all feeling it in different ways from day to day. And I, you know, to be building a team, um, a number of the teams I'm speaking with are not even, they're not in the same geography, not that it would necessarily matter anyway, but 
building a company, I mean, it's already hard enough for many of us to have meaningful relationships through Zoom um, all day long. And it's, it's, I don't know, doubly so is not even the right phrase. It's infinitely so for building a startup. So the thing I try to remind them is that you're a human and don't let the mental health stuff slip. It's, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay if you're not bringing your best self um, every single day. If you're not feeling it, then don't, you know, take the day off. Um, and, you know, there's lots of advice, lots of other things we can discuss, but I, I like to bring, I like to force that issue um, uh, just to remind people that we're all humans and we're going through a strange time and to not leave that part out. I appreciate that because that's super important. All right, Startup Nation. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson and you're listening to The Startup Life. This episode of The Startup Life is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Startup Nation, Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, they work every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. They do whatever it takes for children every day and in times of crisis transforming their lives and the future we share. Startup Nation, right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis in our lifetime. It threatens children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school, and exposed to violence and exploitation. Child poverty is rising. With your support, we can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. Here are some ways your support can make a difference. For just $5, you can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring lifelong learning. And for $25, you can serve a nutritious breakfast and lunch to five out-of-school children in need. And there's many other ways you can help support Startup Nation. So go to savethechildren.org slash savekids or www.savethechildren.org forward slash savekids. So if you're ready to make a difference, Startup Nation, remember, savethechildren.org. Make the change for children. The Startup Life is powered by Ladder. Startup Nation, as an entrepreneur, you are the engine that powers your business. We have had many entrepreneurs on the show, from those that played Division II basketball, quite a few Ironman participants, and even an NFL quarterback. And the one thing they all have in common is that they know getting early morning workout wins leads to business success for the day. However, it's super important what fuel you use for your workout to get that early morning success. And that's where Ladder comes in. Ladder is a sports nutrition company founded by LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Unlike other supplements, every batch is tested by a third party that is trusted by all major professional sports organizations, including the NBA, NFL, MLB, and more to verify the highest standards for quality, but more importantly, safety. Ladder's goal is to help you unlock your best in any situation. Right now, that means access to special offers and expert advice from their community. Personally, I like superfood greens. Not only does it include the most essential nutrients that are hard to get in your diet, like magnesium, zinc, B vitamins, vitamin D, 
They also included the Rodelio root, which helps keep you healthier when stress is high, but also it helps support immunity according to many studies. Use code BETTEREVERYDAY for 30% off everything site-wide at ladder.sport. That's BETTEREVERYDAY for 30% off at ladder.sport. So maybe you're not trying to be a four-time league MVP or a seven-time Mr. Olympia, but you still need the tools to elevate your health that elevates your business. So go with Ladder and prepare to get better every day. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. All right, Startup Nation. So, you know, with everything going on with COVID-19, you know, we're we're all trying to figure out a lot of stuff. Healthcare is definitely one of them. And so a lot of times there's a lot of frustration, you know, outside of like the elements and stuff that we go through. There's a lot of frustration with like paperwork and finding the right provider and, and, and all the other stuff that goes along with, you know, healthcare system and stuff like that. But today we have a great guest that's going to kind of may have a solution for all that and kind of share her background and stuff like that. She is Alexi Alizada. Alexi, how are you, ma'am? I'm good. How are you? I can't complain. I can't complain. So first things first, just kind of tell us a little bit about your company, if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, my name is Alexi Alizada, and I began Advise as a consumer really frustrated with all of the inconsistencies and barriers to getting good care. Right. Um, I became a mom a year and a half ago, and the process of finding a provider that I was comfortable with um, to care for me during my pregnancy and for my daughter after her birth was a painstakingly complex and inefficient process. Mm-hmm. So I decided I really wanted to create something to help simplify it. Gotcha. Um, I had experience in government and regulation, and I previously worked in healthcare consulting and using technology to help make physicians and practices profitable after the changes brought on by the Affordable Care Act. Gotcha. Um, so that, coupled with a health scare that I had, um, really propelled me to begin advice. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you're originally uh, from the UAE and you came over uh, of the United States and you had a bit of a, a, a some health issues, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. So I did grow up in Dubai right. and um, I really got to experience like rapid innovation in terms of infrastructure. Things mm-hmm. are constantly changing there and they really aren't afraid of change right. um, of new ideas and new systems. And they just kind of adopt it and um, have something, you know, in place until someone comes up with something better and then they change it again. Uh, but it's a climate that isn't resistant to change. Whereas here in the U.S., a lot of things about our infrastructure, especially in the medical industry, right. are so ingrained that we can't imagine them changing. And that was really um, a benefit growing up in a country that was really finding its way in like the late 90s and early 2000s and wasn't afraid of adopting new ideas and implementing them. Gotcha. When I did come here, I did have a stroke at the age of 22. Mm. And at the time, I didn't realize how it would change the trajectory of my career. Um, but faced with kind of a paralyzing fear, and it made it very difficult to pick up the phone. Um, scheduling an appointment was difficult. Assembling health records that would result in a you know productive appointment was an immense challenge um, and almost caused me to really forgo care. I mean, you just don't want to deal with it. It's just too, too much. It's too confusing. And um, today, even, you know, a decade after the passage of the Patient Protection uh, Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, the cracks in the healthcare system are really readily apparent to patients like me who often go unheard in their struggle to seek care, um, despite paying a greater portion out of pocket than ever before. Gotcha. So following my recovery, I was really ready to um, use my 
my regulation policy background to bring route change in the industry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to ask a quick follow-up because you talked about, you know, some of that e- exposure and stuff like that and some of those cracks in the healthcare system. Are you seeing, you know, from your, you know, your vantage point as, you know, the, the CEO of a, of a health tech company, are you seeing any, um, mm-hmm. some of those cracks even, you know, further widening due to COVID and everything that's going on now? Yes. I would say that there's a greater barrier to care. Mm. So a lot of people, you know, are really forgoing care and, and taking, you know, and going to their regular appointments because of the risk of COVID. Right. And, you know, a lot of doctor's offices, they take a lot of precautions. So, you know, you're not, waiting in waiting rooms instead of you're waiting in your car. And it just becomes really difficult for people to um, to stay on top of their health, especially if they have chronic conditions, uh, you know, diabetes, cancer, something like that. That really needs to be managed. Um, we want, you know, them, to, we want to arm them with all of every, all the tools that they need to, you know, stay on top of their care. Startup Nation wanted to check out your website. What's that web address? If you don't mind, you know, sharing that with us. Yeah. So our web address is advised with two eyes. So a D V I I S E.com. Gotcha. Advise with gotcha. Two eyes. Thank you so much. And startup nation. If you want to check out advice, we have a uh, link there in the show notes for easy access. If you're listening to the replay on the podcast, Alexa, if you don't mind me asking, talk about some of those features, uh, you know, some from the patient side and some yeah. from the provider side, if you don't mind. Yeah. So we have from the patient side, you can log on and you can see any doctor um, and do your, re- you know, we're trying to arm you with information so that you can make the best decision possible. So we um, have a database of physicians and any, actually all medical providers. So it's doctors, um, chiropractors, acupuncturists, um, any kind of healthcare provider. And um, you can search based on location and then you can compare reviews and their availability, see their training, and you're able to book in real time without having to call. And if they have their telemedicine um, platform set up, then you're able to see them right away on the platform. You can schedule and then you get sent the link right away and you can join the session. It takes a lot of the work out of finding a healthcare provider because a lot of us are just lost trying sure. to find good care for sure. And, and you know, uh, I know a lot of people like they have these frustrations. I know uh, my wife was having some frustrations with her healthcare provider, like trying to find like, you know, uh, a doctor's appointment and, and stuff like that. So having that real yes. time, you know, uh, you know, access and transparency, yes, it's super important. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Absolutely. No, no, you can be making phone calls, you know, all day and they can say, okay, maybe in three weeks we have an appointment, you know, and you have to fit yourself into this one slot. If you have, you know, a a conflict doesn't matter. That's all they have. And this way, if someone cancels, you get to see that appointment come up right away. You know, you can book it. So hopefully it's same day or later in the week. It's not three weeks out, six weeks out where, you know, you're you're not going to get seen or by that time, you know, it's resolved itself. Right. Right. Whatever the issue is. So you really, you know, I think that consistency and being able to access care immediately is very, is very important. So that's what we want to bring. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, on the provider side, you know, one of the things that I've I thought was very interesting and, and I've always been fascinated by is the telemedicine part, because, you know, I was I'm, I'm looking yeah. at uh, this Forbes article from, you know, actually from a few hours ago as of this recording. And uh, they were talking about a mm-hmm. lot of people are kind of doing, 
this kind of, you know, the, the, the self-help kind of thing and stuff like that. And what great way to kind of, you know, not necessarily go it completely alone, but to have that telemedicine uh, part to your health care when you having issues with like getting a, uh, an appointment in time and, and all that other stuff. But talk about that telemedicine part, because I'm always fascinated by that part. Absolutely. So with telemedicine, you're really able to see um, a provider in real time. So if you have an issue, you can, you can be seen right away. Um, you can explain your problem, even if it's something that needs to be um, addressed in person, you can see a telemedicine um, provider first, and then you go to your, they can order imaging. So you just, you know, they can order an x-ray and MRI. You just go then to the imaging center. You don't have to go into a provider's office and then go to the imaging center and then go back to the provider's office because you can be seen via telemedicine. They review your results. Um, you know, they order the imaging, you go to the imaging center and then they review your results and then they can drop ship you braces. They can drop ship you, um, you know, any sort of anything you need. They can't put a cast on. So there are still, you know, things that can't be done, um, you know, via telemedicine, but in terms of ordering, um, you know, ordering blood work or imaging right. or reviewing results, you can definitely do that via telemedicine. And I think one of the most exciting things really about telemedicine is the ability to see providers, say, if you live in a rural area, Absolutely, um, you can keep a provider that, you know, you don't have to go to your local doctor who might not be um, equipped to deal with something like this, that instead you can go um, you can you go online and see, you know, the top expert in your state and they can review your results and track your progress and you get much better care that way than you would at your local doctor being seen in person just because they're not equipped to handle something like a rare or serious chronic condition, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a really a big benefit we have. Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you really hit it on the head and uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, people in rural America and stuff like that, but also in urban America who are having other types of issues to get access uh, to care as well, that, that telemedicine yes. part can be, uh, not just a game changer, but a life changer. Absolutely. Right? Sure. Absolutely. You don't have to, you know, get childcare, you know, in people, the parents can't make it to appointments because they can't find a babysitter. No one can watch their child. I mean, there's so many benefits to telemedicine and being able to be seen um, one-on-one. You know, sometimes if you go to the doctor, I don't know if you've had this experience, but, you know, you, you get seen by a, a medical assistant and then the doctor kind of pops in for a little while, has right. like a moment with you, and then he's really super distracted and it has to leave. Um, and, you know, you get that really one-on-one time with a provider via telemedicine because they're not distracted. They're not, you know, moving from room to room with the wrong notes in front of them. They're really dedicated to you for that specific amount of time. So you can get your questions answered and, you know, get treated like a person. And I think that that's really beneficial. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. And Startup Nation, once again, we're wrapping up with Alexi Alizada, the founder of Advise. And so I want to just ask you and just leave us with this. Why is this work ultimately so important to you? I think because I I really wanted to build a patient-centric platform. I do not think that right now we are equipped to, to handle something like COVID. You know, I, I think that we need to simplify the process for health of healthcare for providers and patients alike. But I really wanted to create something provide, patient-centric um, with providers in mind that really 
would simplify the process because for patients, it's really a challenge to get good care. And, you know, we we really, it's ripe for disruption. This this industry is really ripe for disruption. And, um, and I want to be part and help with that change. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new Startup Blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, If you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.